And I'm a real alcoholic. I'm going to die an alcoholic. But by the grace of God in this program, I'll die a sober alcoholic one day at a time. I was raised in a wonderful home, uh, which uh, had fundamental religion, religious beliefs, including a complete absence. So I just took care of that. I, I didn't start until I was in the military. And it was during the Vietnam era. And my story is, is that I drank uh, too much for too long. But the unique part of it was that it got started. I got started in the military before the alcohol awareness. And we had, uh, I was fortunate enough to be stationed at, at Wilford Hall Hospital at Lackland Air Force Base. And um, they had happy hours, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, beginning at 4.30. Uh, and uh, a, a drink was 35 cents during happy hour, except it wasn't really a drink. It was a double. So I was in the habit of spending, uh, when I wasn't in the hospital, I was in the habit of spending a dollar five every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday afternoon. This was my first exposure to alcohol. And uh, I thought if the good Lord made anything better, he kept it to himself. So I was going to make up for lost time. And I used to, you know, some people look at the automobile classifieds. I used to like to look at the liquor ads <laughs> and uh, and start to make up for lost time. And when I was there in San Antonio, Gene, I, uh, th- this Western song was popular. I want to live fast, love hard, and die young and leave a beautiful memory. And I thought that would be a good good motto for my life. And I worked very hard on it, but I was fortunate enough I'd burn out too soon. And uh, so my drinking career was from 1965 through 1988. I first came to uh, Alcoholics Anonymous in 1981 because I was told I had a drinking problem. And I said, I don't have a drinking problem. I've never had barf on my overalls. I've got all my teeth. I've never been in a barroom brawl. Uh, I've never had any trouble with the medical board. And uh, I, I don't have a drinking problem. I'm just a heavy drinker. And uh, sooner or later, uh, it caught up with me, and I didn't get in any trouble with any author- uh, uh, with any boards or anybody, but I got in trouble inside. And uh, my look good was very important to me. I sort of, sort of was like a piece of uh, mahogany furniture, but it's a veneer. It looked really good on the outside, and on the inside, it was all eaten up by alcohol, or bull weevil, or whatever you want to call it. And so... Um, I was looking good on the outside and and feeling rotten on the inside. And to make a long story short, uh, in the second or third year of my practice, no, it had to be more than that, it was in the tenth year of my practice, I was sitting one weekend in my uh, chair in my den and uh, with a loaded rifle and uh, thinking about using it on myself. And... Um, that's really where the spiritual odyssey began. Earlier that week, I had looked in the mirror, and I'd seen myself. At that time, I weighed 295 pounds, and it was all alcoholic bloat. And I looked at myself, and I, I scarcely recognized myself in the mirror, and, and I asked myself, how are you ever going to get out of this predicament? And then, uh, contemplating suicide... I remember the former drinking buddy of mine who was also happened to be a patient at that time. I practiced internal medicine and rheumatology, more recently just exclusively rheumatology. 
And this guy and I were drinking buddies. He was a wonderful guy. He looked like an overgrown leprechaun. He was a redhead, and he had big, big round face and chin whiskers. And uh, he and I used to drink together. And uh, pretty soon we didn't get invited to the parties anymore because uh, we either drank until we were thrown out or until the liquor supply was gone or until the sun came up. And uh, he was intervened on, and he went into treatment at... Um, what was called Pinecrest Hospital in Santa Barbara in those days. And I was his uh, physician in the hospital. And while he was in there, he had withdrawal seizures. He had had uh, three hours in surgery with a plastic surgeon to sew his tongue back together from a seizure. And because he neglected to tell anybody that he was taking about 16 Valium a day in addition to the uh, fifth to uh, quart of, of uh, vodka every day. His wife was calling me, and she, she went to Al-Anon, and his wife was calling me, and she was finding bottles all over the place and reporting each and every one of them to me. And uh, But he got sober, and he stayed sober the very first time. I guess he didn't want that tongue operated on again. So as I was sitting there uh, loathing myself and contemplating uh, uh, removing my cerebellum from below uh, with a gunshot wound, uh, I called him. It was a Sunday afternoon, and he was out in the garden. This is one of his passions, and one of his constructive passions. And he said, I, I need to clean up a little bit, and I'll be, I'll be right over, and uh, I'll come right over. And he came over, and he did clean up, and he came over, and he brought over a six-pack of Pepsi Light. Pepsi Light was de rigueur in those days, 1981. He told me things those, that day that blew me away, like... Um, it's okay if my daughters don't like me. I mean, I can like them, and if they like me, fine. If they don't, you know, it's okay if I have trouble with the IRS. Uh, they are not the divinity. Sooner or later, they're going to get you. But uh, whatever it takes, you can get through it. It's it's okay if if I get a divorce, as long as I don't drink and grow spiritually. So when whenever I would call him, and it was fairly often initially. And he would just say, it's going to be all right. He was one of these sponsors who says, it's going to be all right as long as you don't drink and grow spiritually. And then he told me how to do some of that stuff. And one of them was uh, to go to a meeting every day and to study and to pray. I had no idea. Uh, I felt so sheepish about prayer because I reasoned that if God is all-knowing, why do I need to tell him what's on my mind? He already knows. I felt very sheepish about that. And the, the other aspects of prayer, I'm just, just learning. So he took me to my first meeting that very first night after we downed a six-pack of Pepsi Light. And the speaker at the meeting, uh, first we were going to go down to the big one at the Alana Club in downtown Santa Barbara. He said, oh, he said no, let's go to a smaller meeting uh, out in Goleta. And um, the speaker was a guy, got a big guy. He got up and he said, my name is Bob. I'm from Bakersfield. I'm a recovering alcoholic. I've never had barf on my overalls. I've got all my teeth. I've never missed any work. I've never had a DUI. And they say if you go to the if you go to the meetings long enough, you'll hear your story. I heard of the very first meeting I went to, and I just thought that that, that my sponsor and God just tailor made all AA meetings uh, for the way it should be for the newcomers. And I and I think in a sense that's true. 
I didn't have a straight line recovery. And in retrospect, there were two reasons. I did have my last drink January 28th of 1988, but I had a few relapses in between 81 and 88. And in retrospect, I had not really taken a true first step. And uh, my subconscious reasoning went something like this. If alcohol is a disease, it must be a little bit like diabetes. And I probably just have stage 2 diabetes. It's mild and it can probably be diet controlled and probably not going to cause me any trouble. And down deep in my heart, uh, this black, cold, denial part of my heart, I did not acknowledge my alcoholism. So I practiced my steps very much like I used to practice my neurologic examination. Cranial nerves, 2 through 12, intact. Uh, and it was really when I was in enough pain and uh, started working the program correctly with this same sponsor uh, that, that I saw a need to get a new sponsor. And it was my last relapse. And in Santa Barbara, the, um, there's a group called the Mother Group. There's about 200, 300 meetings a week in Santa Barbara. And there's a group called the Mother Group, and the reason it's called the Mother Group is the very first meeting ever in Santa Barbara, and it's really heavily attended. And I felt so bad about that last relapse, which was a two-day jobber, uh, that I went, and my look good gets me in trouble all the time. Everybody was just sure I was Dr. Bob. And so I went down and sat in the second row, and when they asked for any, anybody in the first 30 days of sobriety, I put up my hand. It was the hardest thing I ever did. I thought, I, I thought I'd paralyze my deltoid or something. But I put up my hand, and... Uh, you could hear gasps. Dr. Bob relapsed. And that, that was, that shocked me. Because, first of all, I, I didn't, I, I knew it was, I knew it was bad for my humility to be identified with Dr. Bob. And secondly, I, everyone in the room knew me. It was humiliating. And it, it got me started on the long, on the right direction. After that meeting, a tugboat captain, a fishing boat captain came up with sort of what I recognize now was, was a grimace on his face. I thought it was a smile, but it was a grimace. And he said, uh, whatever you were doing before wasn't enough or it was wrong. I said, would you be my sponsor? And we met for coffee, and he asked me, he said, are you willing to go to any length? And I hemmed and hawed a little bit, and he got up and he started walking out of the coffee shop. And I said, Rick, come back. I'm willing to go to any length. And he said, can you take instruction? And I said, yes. And he said, well, you take it from me. And I said, yes. And this man uh, is a big book sponsor. And we went through recovery just the way it says. And I used to call to him and bellyache about certain things in my life. And he would say, what does the book say about this? And I would say, ah, the book doesn't address this. And he would say, look in chapter to wives or... Um, look in the third chapter and it would be there so I was able to uh, get sober and stay sober but um, I had a lot of issues to deal with and I had a lot of pain and my look good kept me in trouble because I would not, not acknowledge when I was hurting and I would not share some of the bigger issues that were down in here.
and this dark black part of my heart. And, you know, some people say it gets better, and one of the speakers says it gets better, but not necessarily easier. And that's been the case with me. It's not necessarily easier. My kids got bigger. Uh, I dealt with the ramifications of divorce and practice and managed care. And I went broke in sobriety because I refused. I was so rigid. In fact, my sponsor said I was as rigid as a blue steel I-beam. And I was so rigid that I would not differentiate between the HMO patients and the fee-for-service patients. And I and persisted in giving everybody a complete history and physical and taking a whole hour with a new patient every time. I went broke. So instead of um, inst- instead of trying to beat him, I joined him and I took a job with Cigna. And I was in I was in Los Angeles with Cigna for three years, and I split my time between administration and clin- clinical work. And it was a good answer for me because it helped get me off my feet. But I I almost never did get over my grief at leaving Santa Barbara, which is still one of my favorite places in the world. After three years, Cigna sold out to a um, another outfit that had just paid Justice Department uh, $50 million in penalties for uh, fraud in the home health care business. And uh, we just got a uh, FedEx letter one Saturday saying, sign this in 30 days or you'll be out of work and you'll be working for um, us now under the oxymoron um, Friendly Hills. They were dirty, but they weren't friendly. And um, there was no way. I'm not an attorney. I didn't even have my attorney read that contract. There's no way I would sign that contract. So in 30 days, I was out of work. And a friend of mine in Medford that had gone through the UCLA Rheumatology Fellowship with me he was looking for a, an associate. And I called him. And he hemmed and hawed around. And it became very clear to me that he wanted somebody younger to help perpetuate the practice longer. But in two weeks, he faxed me, and he said, call me, and I knew what it was about. And I had interned at the University of Oregon. Very difficult to get an Oregon license if you're an old-timer. But if you had one all the way along and renewed it every year, I always wondered why I was sending in those, those, that money every other year, because every year it it staggered up in in amount. Well, the reason was is because I was going to end up practicing in Oregon, and I had interned up there. And I found paradise, and I found a place where, um, People were pretty honest. Well, there was a great AA, and uh, what what the deal was is that uh, HMOs had not really penetrated in the, in the Medford yet, and we had a strong IPA uh, that could uh, fend off a lot of the unfavorable insurance contracts. I began to burn out, and um, I found out after the suicide of my sister that uh, my great-grandfather had killed himself, and I had a fir- first cousin who was hospitalized periodically. She was a violinist with a symphony, uh, hospitalized uh, periodically to keep her from killing herself. So it turns out that major depression is a family disease, and it explained a lot of things for me. I do not wish to attribute my relapses to major depression, but I do wish to, um, to, to use that to help me understand how dark I felt. You know, when I was in high school, and they said the aphorism, live and let live. Uh, well, usually it was used in reference to tolerance. But with me, I took it as it meant don't off myself. Just get through this week. Don't drive the car into the ditch. Get through this week and uh, 
It'll be okay. When I started drinking, I had a lot less of that, but I still had some. So on this spiritual odyssey, I was going through the ritual of prayer, but I never really understood it. And uh, I read a book. I've read several books. Um, my gray matter is so good, I can't think of the name of the author right now. But it's about a, a, a clergy from the Church of England. And uh, she also wrote about Penn Merrick and, uh, I'll think of it in a minute, Howitch, Susan Howitch. And uh, in one of those books, it tells about how this priest's wife got into prayer. And it made a lot of sense to me. Basically, what it was is she had um, heated discussions with God and then got quiet for a long time. And uh, that has helped me a lot. And I don't ask for things. But sometimes I complain a lot. And then I just shut up and get quiet. And it helps me a lot. Now what it's like now. Since I last shared with you, uh, it turns out that you know I'm not using, I'm not drinking, but I have this penchant for getting my fa- fanny in a sling. And... Um, I had bilateral knee arthroplasties in uh, August of 1977. I had this attractive uh, 39-year-old patient who had been a hostess on a TV talk show. My address was a matter of public record. My, and my daughter and son-in-law had moved in to help me with the rehabilitation. And she called and asked if she could come over and bring some videos from some of her shows. And my daughter and son-in-law were home at the time, and I said, yeah. And it was not a good idea. She had other things on her mind than uh, just videos. I fended her off one visit, and then the second one was my fault. She came the second time, and she initiated this activity that ended up in sex. Since I had both legs all operated on, it was not intercourse. And um, she wrote me a series of letters that ended up saving my professional life because it turns out that she's a borderline personality disorder. And when she could no longer manipulate me, she uh, reported me to the neurologist who had initially referred her to me. And he did not sit on it for one hour. He relayed it, he faxed it to the medical board. And um, I was invited to begin an investigation. I got an attorney in Portland, because that's where the medical board sits. It's 250 miles from Medford. And uh, I got an attorney who's a woman who who represents a lot of physicians and had 20 years of experience in it. Long story short, enormously long investigation, interviews, um, psychiatric evaluations. And uh, I got a phone call from my attorney one day. She said, it's a miracle. I've never had a judgment like this come down from the medical board. You get a letter of reprimand. You don't have to go to treatment. You don't have to. Uh, pay a fine. You don't have any constraints upon your practice. And um, that was just fantastic. But it showed me that I have a whole lot of areas that I have to work on still. Uh, and uh, in the 1960s, when I was a, a rheumatology fellow in magazines like Cosmo and some, some of those other wonderful uh, journals, there were articles like How to Seduce Your Doctor. Sometimes I was a willing victim, which which fortunately did not show up on in, in the investigations. 
Um, but it was established that I'm not a sexual predator, and uh, there had been um, uh, no prior damage done. It was always instituted by when I was single and uh, by the woman, because I see, I, I can't say no to women or alcohol. I couldn't. Now I can. Uh, and uh, that's one area of my recovery. And when I first went to an IDAA meeting and one of the surgery residents got up and he announced that he was a sexual addict, uh, my whole aorta froze. I mean, that just scared. This 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 program can deal with that. Hallelujah. So um, I think I've got things in perspective. My wife is not here at this meeting. She knows about all this stuff. I have not met her yet. I met her in the gym about three and a half, four years ago, and we courted for three years before we married last December. And that's another part of my recovery, is I had um, I had gotten married last December, and uh, she had been single for 15 years, and I'd been single for 15 years, and she's a very strong woman. Guess what we're going through this year? <laughs> we're going through the year one adjustments, and we're not tr- even trying to do it without professional help. And she's a normie, and she's not an Al- Al-Anon yet. I say yet, but I keep pitching it. Uh, because um, we were having a frank discussion one day, and she says, you go to AA too damn much. And I said, up, oh, that's a warning sign. Don't ever say that again. That's That's irreverent. You may want to blaspheme, but don't ever tell me not to go to AA as much as I am. And that's, you know, that's where I plant my feet. And uh, we worked that through with with our advisor. I want to give you a follow-up on my daughters. Uh, last time I reported to you, which was in Vancouver, my uh, younger daughter was on the streets using and drinking, and um, she's gotten clean and sober. She's followed me to Oregon. She naively thought she was going to get a job in uh, Medford right down the street from me. And she actually works in uh, about 80 miles up the freeway in a little community called Myrtle Creek. Absolutely. Picture book. Uh, you know, canyons and fir trees and waterfalls and covered bridges. and just I just love to go see her. <laughs> and my other daughter followed me up, and she is breeding mules and horses in uh, Grants Pass, Oregon, where the property is a little bit cheaper. And uh, I I tell her that I'm going up to see the horses, but I'm really going up to see my grandson, who's seven, and uh, who gives me not a moment's rest when I am uh, when I'm with him, and it's just delightful. He calls me Papa Gerber to differentiate me from Papa Miller. And he's been trained to address adults by their title before he starts talking by the end of the weekend, I'm hearing the appellation Papa Gerber about ten times a minute. Because usually what we had planned is finished. And uh, if you take that boy trout fishing and you don't get a trout in the first 20 minutes, forget it. <laughs> and, uh, but there's plenty to do there. I did not come to AA at first in sobriety because my sponsor, a street sponsor, book sponsor said, don't join any elitist society. But when they had it in San Diego, which was about 220 miles, 200 miles actually, from where I lived, 
I went to the San Diego meeting and I was guilty of contempt before investigation. And uh, that was the meeting that this this uh, banner was put on the podium. And I have been in love with the IDAA ever since. I have uh, formed friendships that have just been life enriching and uh, blessings to me. And I, I can call people in Florida or New York or Arizona and ask them for advice or just talk. People I met at these meetings and uh, IDA has just been a savior for me. I'm, I won't take more time other than to say that for some people it gets better but not necessarily easier. And uh, I've got a lot of work to do in my program and a lot of and God keeps presenting them to me. Thank goodness, one at a time. Uh, and the 12 steps work for all these things. So I would like to thank you for your time, and I thank the committee for asking me to pinch it and changing my name. Thank you. <laughs> have a, a couple announcements I made earlier. The CME uh, during noon hour will be in here instead of someplace else. And you pick your noon lunches up, the, the arrangements you've made there. The other announcement is the souvenirs are on sale. Get them while they're hot. They need to get rid of a bunch of stuff, I think. So uh, our next speaker volunteers, Kevin. Uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name's Kevin, and I'm an alcoholic. I, uh, I've been sitting down there uh, quite nervously for the last few minutes watching the back door, and uh, I didn't realize I knew so many people who were here. <laughs> um, there were lots of people who have come in and smiled, and that's nice, and I get that same feeling when I go to my local meeting. I walk in, and I'm usually late, and I walk in, and everybody turns around and they smile. And when I finish drinking... I couldn't think, and that many people smiled when I walked into a room. In fact, nobody smiled when I walked into a room. Spiritual Odyssey sounds a very sort of grand title when I looked at this, what I wanted to, to realize. And then, as I've been taught in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, there, you can't bullshit bullshitters, you know. All you got to do is stand up there and tell them how things are, how they were, and what happened to you to change them. And I thought that's what I would do. I would run through my story very quickly and concentrate on the times... When I was forced, or it was obvious, that some change, some move, some spiritual attitude, something in me had to give if I was going to survive. So I'll be brief, and if I make lump, miss lumps out, then just be glad. I used to wish I had a wonderful story that had jails and robberies and all sorts of things, and people would laugh, you know. And it's not. It's just a messy, nasty story. But it was enough for me. And... Um, I was born in Scotland. You may hear the traces of an accent still there. And um, I left. I left Scotland eventually because of the way they drank there, really. It's, uh, I couldn't tolerate that sort of behavior any longer, so I, so I left. Right, I was born in Scotland, and um, I was born on the 31st of October, uh, 1945. So I was a winner from the start to be born on Halloween. I was one of 12 babies born that night. There were 11 girls and me. My brother and sister told me they went to see me a few days later and all the little girls were nicely wrapped up in pink blankets and in a line and there was one other baby with no blanket on, black hair, all scratched and horrible and weighed 10 pounds. 
And we didn't want that baby. They often used to tell this story, you know, and everybody used to laugh and say that was wonderful, you know, and it was funny. But you know what I heard? I wasn't good enough. That's the message I got from that story from when I was a little boy. It took me a long time to realize that's what it was. But that's what I heard. You're not the one we wanted. That made me the middle child. <laughs> I have a daughter who's uh, 22. Her name's Camilla. And somebody asked her the other day, I heard her, and they said, how many children? And she said, I'm one of five. She said, I'm the center child. I never felt the center child. I was always the middle one. But life went on, and I, I went off to school, and I did quite well at school, and got a scholarship to go to the, to the, to the, to the better school, which this brother and sister before me had also got a scholarship, but they didn't do well enough and had to leave. So there was I at 14 years of age, and I thought, got you both. That's it. <laughs> and really, it was a pattern that ran through my, my, my thinking. I dearly loved my brother and sister. Only alcoholics would understand that, when I'm thinking about them the same way. I knew that the, 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 the the load in my life was to go through it as St. Francis of Assisi's younger brother. That's who my brother was. He was wonderful. He had the personality. He was always nice. Lawrence was always this. Lawrence was always that. And what I heard was, and you're not. That was not the message that was sent, but that's the message I picked up. So when I, I left school, and uh, my father died when I, when I was about 15, and this brother and sister, none, not to my surprise, were too busy leading their own life. And so I really got the role of, of looking after mother because things financially were not great in the family after my father died. But I was too young until I had finished school and went to university. Uh, and up to this time, I had never drunk. I didn't like drink. Uh, the boys around about me used to drink. I didn't like the taste. I didn't like the smell. And I thought the best thing to do, really, was if I had to, to drink it when they were there. Only a little. And eventually, I would drink Coca-Cola and Bacardi in it because then that was acceptable to have alcohol in it. But I really didn't want the alcohol, but I drank it. The peer pressure was there, I felt it was necessary to get the approval, and so I, so I drank. Eventually I went to university, and, and as well as my studies in, in dentistry, I, I concentrated on learning how to drink properly as well. And it didn't take long. Uh, I could drink the spool beer with the rest. The only difference in my drinking then and anybody else's was that when they wanted to go home, I always had to have what in Scotland is known as a carryute. And a carryute is what you, in English, you would say a carry home. It's, it's the drink you would take home with you to have when you had finished drinking in the pub. And from the very beginning, I always had to take something home. I never wanted the party to end. I always had to have a little bit more. Nobody else did, but I did. But I didn't see that. That just made me macho man. That just made me better than the rest. It got me the attention. I left university. While I was at university, I, I, I decided I would pursue my career in dentistry in the military. And the official reason was I didn't want to spend my life for 30 years in the same room using the same drill and the same old people, I would go and see the world. But the truth of the matter was, it gave you a certain sort of financial stability to be in the military, uh, because they paid us a salary while we were students. And my management of, of my finances had been about as, uh, well, it fitted in with the rest of my life and how manageable that was. And it was to be a pattern through all my, all my time that I never had enough money to do what I wanted to do. Uh, I, could never, I never knew where my money went. I never knew why I had less than everybody else. And I never knew why my wallet was empty in the morning when other people hadn't spent so much. But if I had ever had the sense to relate it to the quantity of alcohol that had been consumed, I would have worked out quite simply. I joined the military. I met a girl when I was at university, and we got married uh, when I finished, uh, and she left university as well, and we were posted off to Germany, uh, me to do my dentistry with the British Army. And, of course, anybody who knows, it's, it's uh, 
sending a potential alcoholic to Germany where the beer is, is just, you know, I was like a duck to water by this time. It was wonderful news. I always remember my wife used to go on with me. She said, why don't you have tea when you come in from work in the afternoon? And I used to say, but we live in Germany. She says, why do you drink tea? The Germans all drink beer. You have to drink beer at tea time, breakfast time. Right? That's what they do. You know, you have to mix with the natives, I said. And I really did. You know, I, I got into it big time. And you'll not at all be surprised to know that before very long my military career was in, the, was in tatters because of the alcohol. My attitudes really hadn't changed very much. I remember once the commanding officer coming up to me and said, you know, you really drink far too much. I mean, it's none of my business because you're the dental officer. You're not under my command, but really you drink too much. So I pulled myself up to my full five foot six and a half and I looked at him and I said, you know, when your career goes along far enough to you to earn as much as me, you'll be able to drink like I do. I didn't drink very much after that in the officer's mess because I wasn't exactly very welcome. But it's interesting, what happened was that the doctor and I then retired hut to the golf club where we continued to drink the way we wanted to drink and to hell with the British Army, really. He could get on with his problem. So it, it proceeded, really, and, and most of my misdemeanors when I was there were either financial, because I kept writing people checks that I didn't have funds for, or they were messy social. I would, I would fall down at the beginning of a regimental dinner and not able to get up again. I would go to sleep before they served the main course at the table. I still have a penchant for falling asleep, as one or two of you should notice anyway. Um, but it really, it, it was bad. I remember on one occasion, and I've heard it on a tape, so I, I'm not quite sure whether I still, whether it's true, but I, I can firmly remember my wife asking me when we were going out one night. She said, would you do me a favor? Would you please not get falling down drunk? I said, no, no, of course I won't. It's all right, it's all right. And would you please just try to say somewhere in the conversation, I don't know. Because I knew everything. I had a mouth with a mileage on it that if it had been a motor car, it would have been in the scrapyard. Motor mouth was me. I just could not keep quiet. And most of what she spoke was rubbish. Anyway, eventually I got the, the message from the military, either shape up or ship out, uh, or we're going we're gonna, to uh, we're gonna court-martial you. And so I offered to resign, and it was accepted with alacrity. Certainly they said. And I was very surprised, you see, because I thought they were going to say, well, look, we can't really afford to lose good men like you. You better stay. And, and this became a pattern in, in my drinking as years went on. Just before I get into trouble, I always used to offer to resign. I would say, well, if it's going to be like that, I'll resign. And they always said, yes, okay. And I was always surprised. Every time. And I'd skip a little bit. The only time I ever offered to resign from somewhere and my resignation was refused was in Alcoholics Anonymous. Because <laughs> I fell out with them and I said, well, that's it. If that's the way it's going to be here, I'm leaving. And this guy said, no, that's all right. Please stay. We need people like you here. <laughs> you can come back anytime you want. So anyway, that's, that, that's the great. So anyway, I, I got slung out or left the military. Uh, and they kept my gratuity and all my money to pay my debts. Uh, so I came out and here then, by this time I was married and I had uh, a wife and three children. No money, no home, and no job. And I didn't really think my life was too bad. So I, um, <laughs> so I then proceeded on my, my Walter Mitty uh, existence when I would con banks and mortgage companies into lending me money and giving me money from this mythical gratuity that I was going to get from the military. And uh, so I lived on that. We, we got a house. We got money. I've got loans. Uh, and always I could convince these people that the letter authorizing this stuff would just be coming the next day or the day after. And don't worry about it too much. It'll turn up. Uh, and because I st still had this air of being an officer of the British Army, they all believed me, I think. But anyway, silly old them because it just wasn't true at all. It was all a bunch of lies. There was no money. There was nothing coming. And eventually, of course, we were put out of the house 
The mortgage companies can only be duped for so long. The banks are only patient for so long. And the whole world collapsed down round about me. While this was going on, in an effort to, to get some sort of normality in my life, uh, I went off and, and got a job. Uh, but the job really wasn't on this planet either. I used to get in this car in the morning and drive down the A1, which is one of the main roads in north-south in, in England. And I'd pull into a lay-by and I would buy a half a bottle of whiskey and I would drink the whiskey and go to sleep. And I usually would waken up about three and at three I would go back into the same off license and I would drink a smaller amount of vodka and have another sleep and then I would get in the car and drive home. And I would tell my wife what a hard day I'd had at work. And she'd say, goodness me, maybe you should have one drink. And I'd say, yeah, sure. And, uh, and that went on and on until eventually it couldn't go on any longer. While I was in the military, I'd had an accident when I was drunk driving. And it was most unfortunate because it was my birthday and I drove down the street. And as I went down the street, there was a car coming up the street the other way and we sort of clipped bumpers. And I thought, oh dear, I better get out and sort of swap insurance details with this guy. So I got out and it transpired that this fellow was the head of the criminal police <coughs> in, in, in Hamill, the, the, the town that I was staying in. And he said, you're driving down an Einbahnstrasse. To which I looked at him and the signs pointing this way, you see. And I said, but I always drive down the street this way. And he gave me a very strange look. And he said, would you like to come in here and we'll just exchange details. So, cut a long story short. If you've ever tried to refuse giving blood to German police, I would counsel against it. They're very big, very strong, and they can produce doctors from all over the place who are just the same size and can get blood out of the stone, I'm quite sure. So, excuse <coughs> me, here I was back in, in, in England this years later with one of these offences under my belt. In fact, I got away very lightly with that one because I was just leaving Germany at the time and I swapped licenses and did all sorts of devious things and so it didn't show in my records. But it wasn't very long after my world fell in in Yorkshire where there was no job, no house. And I went back to Scotland where my mother-in-law took us in because we were penniless, homeless. I had three children and a wife. And a colleague of mine that I met that I qualified with gave me a job in Scotland. And I knuckled down and started to do some work and we started to pay the debts off. But I was under serious pressure about my drinking at that time from the family. And uh, that's when I went to Alcoholics Anonymous, and, but resigned after two meetings. But I had heard of a priest who used to be drunk and wasn't drunk anymore, they told me. So here am I in central Scotland in a very sort of half-Catholic, half-Protestant area, not too dissimilar from Northern Ireland, really. And I marches up to the presbytery door and I said, excuse me, Father, I believe you used to drink, you go to Alcoholics Anonymous and you don't get drunk anymore. So he sort of thuttered and looked around him and he said, yes, come in, come in. So, and I went and, and he sat down and told me that he was an Alcoholics Anonymous. And he gave me his book, he gave me his big book. And we talked about problems and we talked about alcohol. And I said to him, I said, well, what do you think I should, the book father, what, what will I do? And he said, well, he said, sensible chap like you, he said, why don't you start, read chapter five, that will help you. And what I heard was, you're not that bad, you don't need the first four chapters. Keep drinking, and when you're bad enough, hmm, you might still be at chapter five. This, this, my mind was not good. So I then went home, put the book on the side of the table, and uh, carried on my, my merry way. And something happened one night. I came in very late, very drunk, and my wife was sitting up in bed reading my book. She was reading my book. I was very angry. I didn't want to read the bloody book, but she was held in one head reading the book. That was... That was a certainty. 
But I, was, I, I became aware at that time that my, my, my drinking was causing trouble and I would have to do something about it. Well, events overtook me because I, I crashed my car again, drunk. Um, and this time I hit a pedestrian, an old man who was crossing the road, and killed him. And uh, I was very frightened. I did not stop drinking. And I was very worried about what would happen and what I would be charged with them. The way the legal system works in Scotland, it was about six months before I found out what the charges were going to be. And in that time, I have to say, I milked and used all the sympathy I could get from anybody who was around, who could understand. It meant I was allowed to drink and people weren't too critical. It meant I could not turn up for work and people understood because I was under a lot of pressure and waiting for this result. And I used the situation mercilessly for my own fulfillment. I have to tell you that during that time, I did not for one minute think about that old man, what I had done to him, about his family, his friends, his life, and the lives of all the people he knew. I really believe that that was the point of my spiritual bankruptcy. I could not have imagined in my life that that is how I would have thought about such an instance. I still did not stop drinking. I still did not go to Alcoholics Anonymous. I simply offered to resign my job. They accepted with alacrity, and I did a geographical down to Reading. It turned out that the old man I had killed, his blood alcohol level was actually higher than mine. He had just stumbled out of the pub. Be that as it may, I was fined a very reasonable amount of money and banned for driving for a year. That was all. And instead of being grateful, I just felt as if I had escaped. So I did my geographical, changed my job, went down to England, where I thought all my problems were going to be solved. In the meantime, I had managed to work and put some money together, and we had a home that was mortgaged, but we were paying the mortgage, except that I had sort of forgotten to pay it for nine or ten months. And it transpired, I went to Reading. My wife had to sell the house to redeem the mortgage, and uh, she didn't know what she was going to do. But she came, we rented a house down in the south of England and we thought, well, we'll get out of Scotland and try again. I knew it was Scotland that was really the problem. So uh, so we left. Within six months I had driven my car up the back of a lorry at five o'clock in the evening. Um, drunk out of my head. Uh, the police were involved and there I was, number three. And I thought I was going to jail. I, uh, I didn't go to jail. They found me a lot more money, which I bank lifted from Lloyd's Bank. I didn't have it, but I took it anyway and promised them I'd pay it back. And they agreed, because I had gone by then. Because that's how I worked. <laughs> and uh, my bank manager told me once, he said, if you, do, if you behave like this in a shop, he said, the security man would arrest you for shoplifting. This is bank lifting, he said. But I thought, he was a very unreasonable sort of man altogether, so I changed banks. Um, I paid my fine, and... Uh, I knew something had to go, because again, I offered to resign for my job, and again, they accepted. At that time, there's a publication in England called the British Dental Journal, and the last sort of 50 pages are jobs for people, advertisements for people looking for associates, looking for dentists. So I read the British Dental Journal. I've never read any of the academic articles in it at all. I only used to keep a coffee in case I needed to find another job. So I looked it up, and by mistake, I opened it the wrong page, and there was a letter there from a dentist. He had written to the journal uh, about his wife who had died. And his wife was alcoholic. And she died of alcoholism. 
And this was an open letter to anybody who was out there that was suffering to give him a ring because there was help. And for some reason or other, I don't know what took me, I phoned this guy. And he said, give me your address. I gave him my name and my address. And I got a letter from another alcoholic dentist the next day. And up to that moment, I really believed I was the only alcoholic dentist in the whole world. Just to cut a long story short, you'll all be here for lunchtime. I, I managed to be decanted into the home for the bewildered, known as St. Bernard's, which is an old uh, hospital in, in the West End of London that they, they used to use during the Napoleonic War, I think. And uh, Napoleon was a Frenchman, probably, who used to irritate us a lot, but this is where they kept the prisoners. And um, we, I, I was in there for about eight weeks. I was delighted to go, really, because this man told me I was sick. I wasn't bad. And I was delighted to get in there because bank managers and mortgage builders and that sort of people don't come chasing you inside uh, a hospital. So I was quite safe in there. I was in there for about six weeks. Uh, I came out again and I was drunk within another six weeks. And uh, one night I was doing my usual thing and sneaking drinks and hiding drinks and my 12-year-old daughter said to me, are you all right, Daddy? And I said, well, no, I'm not really. I'm not well. And my wife had always told the children I wasn't well. Daddy was sick. She never told them I was a drunken little violent creep. They maybe worked that out, but she didn't tell them. And, and she said, Daddy, if you're not well, I said, well, I'd maybe better go back to treatment. And she said, Daddy, if you're not well, why don't you go back tomorrow? And again, for some reason or other, in my head, the voice said, she's right. She knows more than you. Why don't you go back? So I went back into treatment for a week. And uh, when I was in there, I had a tape. I think it was a tape, I'm not quite sure where they had it, but I had something and it changed my life. And what I heard was a man's voice and it said, it's not enough to want to change and it's not enough to need to change. You've got to change to experience the change. And there was nothing new in this. I thought it was terribly clever, but that's more an indication of my mental state than anything else. And I came out of there in November 1983 and for some reason or other with the grace of God and the help of the people in Alcoholics Anonymous, who, by the way, had all changed in this period. It's not been necessary for me to drink or to take a pill since then. I came out to the same shambles that I went into and had to learn how to deal with it and how to cope with it. I had a sponsor who spent his time and a lot of my time trying to get me to see that I was powerless over alcohol. And since I had tried it my way for all these years and I hadn't worked, was it not reasonable to try it somebody else's way? I had tried to fix it so often, I had ducked and died so often, and all I had to do to get well was to give in and to ask for help. I managed to do that. And he told me, really, he said, you know, sobriety is two things. He said, it's all about relationships. It's all about your relationship with God, your relationship with yourself, and your relationship with other people. He said, in sobriety, in fact, he said, it's a great work of art. It's mostly work. He said, when you look at one of those big pictures and you see all the little strokes that the artist has put in, he said, that's all you've got to do is concentrate on putting in the strokes. Let somebody else look at the picture. And I've tried to do that. And I came out and, and, and things got better. And things were really getting better for me. And I said to him, I said, you know, things are really getting better. And he looked me straight in the eye and he said, yes, but are you getting better? <laughs> I 
and I realized that things got better around about me. Material things got better. Relationships got better. But I needed to get me better. So off I went on my, my journey through the steps with him. And uh, in the meantime, I met some wonderful people. And some wonderful things happened to me, and some awful things happened to me. And, and usually I'm afraid to report in my case it's when the awful things happen that I get my spiritual jolt. In 1985, I was 18 months sober. I was 40 years of age, and two great things happened. We had a new baby, um, same wife, same family, eight-year gap. And we had this new baby in April. In November of that year, I had a heart attack, and I got out of hospital on Christmas Eve. I was very angry with God, because I thought I had done a good deal with him. I got sober, I got straightened up, I was doing my best, and all he could do was... Give me this. At that time, there was a friend I had met in the doctor's group, and he, his wife, sent me a prayer book. And this prayer book is called Prayers of Life by a Belgian priest called Michel Coist. And the clever thing about this prayer book is it's got the answers in it as well. So you get the prayers, and God answers you back. And the prayer that struck me was there was a prayer to an addict and alcoholic. The prayer of the addict and alcoholic. And the alcoholic was talking to God and he was saying, here I am, and look at the awful things that are happening to me. And if you really love me, why are you doing these things to me? Why are you allowing them to happen? Here I am, tied up in myself. I'm so imprisoned. Why are you doing this to me? And the answer in the prayer was, I can hear you. I can see you. You're inside yourself. You're stuck. I'm waiting outside, but the handle to the door is on your side. Mentally, I was in a terrible state, and there was an answer. God's done that to me in all my journey, through people, through books, through memories, through all sorts of ways, I believe. My God sends me messages. He sends me signs. He sends me the information, and he gave me the brain to pick it up or to leave it there. And it's my choice. And that's what makes me different from the animals and from everybody else. I've got my free will. I have my choice. And today it's my choice. So whether I make myself available to see those signs and to hear what's there. So out of my heart attack came my first great spiritual jump in, in recovery. Somebody told me once, if you keep asking God the question and you don't get an answer, the best thing to do is to try another question. And I've tried to do that too. My life got better and things got better. We had another, another baby. We had two children who'd never known me drinking. We had some bad times. I had one daughter who was run down by a motor car and there she was lying in the street. And I really was in a terrible panic about it. I thought she was dead. And I didn't know how I would ever cope with, uh, you know, with, with a child who died. And I asked God in my head, please don't ask me this. And the voice in my head said, It'll be all right. It was the voice of the sponsor in my head that said, It'll be all right. And I heard the voice saying, Are you all right? And I could say, Yes, I'm all right. As it turned out, she too was all right. I had a similar thing with another of my daughters who had a cancer, and her bone and it took ten days. It's not a long time, is it? It's not ten days. Well, ten days is not a long time to get the results of an autopsy. But for an alcoholic father, of the doctor that sent them back to treatment. It's a long time. But again, it was okay. It was okay. I had more surgery in 1994 when I had my heart attack. 
And you would think I would have learned from this, you know. But the night before my bypass, I was frightened. I was frightened. I didn't want to die. I got phone calls. I got cars. I got people telling me it would be all right. And I have to tell you, that until I got down on my knees beside the bed at two o'clock in the morning, they were just me and they were just God. Guess what? It's all right. It was all right. And I got up off my knees and got back into my bed. I slept to sleep at the just, and by the next morning, I could just let it go. Because it had nothing to do with me, really. I just had to turn up and see what happened. My other great spiritual thing, you know, was in 1993 when I came to, to IDA. I, it was like a whole new world opened to me. You know, I arrived here predisposed to love you people. When I was in treatment at the very beginning, when I was in the detox, I got three visitors. There were three doctors in the one day. Martin Kay, Jack Rose, and Joe Me, and they all took time out of that day to come and visit me. And at that time, I didn't know three people in the world that would have taken the time out to come and visit me. So when I arrived here, Martin had told me all about you. He told me all about Al Marley, who used to come to London. He told me all about Doug Talbot. He told me about Leclerc. I had met Donald Mackay. So when I arrived here, I felt as if I knew a whole lot of people. And I did. I've learned so much coming to these meetings. Each year I come, I pick something up, and I take it away. When I came to Scottsdale the first time, Gavin spoken on Sunday morning, and he read a poem out by a drug addict. Some of you might remember, and it was about a duck. It was about a duck, really, that wanted to be an eagle. That was me. I wanted to be an eagle. But really, I was a duck. And the whole thing about the poem as it went on was that really, it was all right to be a duck. And when I came here, I realized it was all right for me to be me. I didn't have to be anybody else. I didn't have to pretend to be anybody else. It was okay. When I came to Minneapolis, it was after my surgery in my heart. And I was really still quite angry. And uh, Bishop, Bishop Lawrence spoke that morning. I was in bed upstairs because I had hurt my back. And he spoke that morning about it being all right to be broken. It was all right to be broken. I didn't want to be broken. And when I heard him <coughs> and how he explained this, I went home and it was all right to be broken. So many other things have happened to me. And on a daily basis, it's been all right. There was a drunk monk who disguised himself in New Jersey on the Sunday morning. And after he had spoken, one of my daughters said to me, You know, Daddy, that's the nearest I've ever come to understand how you, why you had to drink. There were seven children, seven, five children and my wife and I have come to IDA. That's a lot of money and a lot of plane fares. And I don't grudge a dollar. It's the only place in the world that a whole family can come and get well together. We stand and say blithely, it's a family illness. But this is where families come to get better. And if I ever had any doubt about that, I saw the result yesterday at the Alateen meeting. That was my boy. God, is that proud. I was amazed, actually, that he listens. And the evidence was there that he listens. We do drive to school each day, and we do talk. And we do say our just as a day prayer together. And we do say our serenity prayer. And we pray for the people here every day. People in IDA. There's a great friend of mine called Jim Henry, 
he died. Dr. Jim Henry, he was Irishman. So when he was finishing his talk, he always used to say, I am an alcoholic. And unless I take steps on a daily basis to deal with that, then I will drink again. And that is how I look at mine. Now, one thing I read last year after I spoke, I think it was last year, the year before, and I apologize for reading things off, but it just sums up where I'm at. My Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. I do not see the road ahead of me, and I cannot know for certain where it will end. Nor do I really know myself, and the fact that I think I'm following your will does not mean I'm actually doing so. But I believe that desire to please you does in fact please you, and I hope that I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire, and I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore will I trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. It's Thomas Merton's prayer, and if I could just do that, then a day at a time, I'll be back to see you all next year. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Kevin. Our next speaker from Oklahoma City is Linda. My name is Linda, and I'm an alcoholic. And as John told you, I live here in Oklahoma City, and I have for the last 10 years. And Oklahoma is very dear to me, despite uh, the wind blowing the way it does, because this is where I got sober. Um, by the grace of God, I've not had to have a drink since June 24th of 1998. And it is not because I've not thought about it or wanted to, but somehow God has honored him, honored my prayer and his word that if I do the next right thing, he'll keep me in his sight and his hand upon me. I, uh, I practice internal medicine here. I am on faculty at the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center. And if we keep doing what we're doing by the next 10 years, everybody in faculty will be a member of this program. Um, I will share a little bit with you about my drinking history, which isn't all that exciting, except it's my story and that's all I have. When I was asked to do this, I just remember telling a gentleman in my home group that I had no idea what I was going to say when I got up here. And he asked me what the theme was, and I said, spiritual odyssey and recovery. And he looked at me with that kind of Cheshire cat smile of a man who's had good sobriety for 15 years. And he said, that's okay. He said, because it's not about you anyway. And then I thought, well, well, then what? Then what do I do? But I was fine until last night, and I could not sleep all night because I was thinking, what do I say to these people who are my colleagues and my peers? And what I came to the realization is that AA is the first place where my academic performance means absolutely nothing that it's the only place where my willingness and my ability, availability, are all that are going to matter in the end. And that is a humbling place for a girl who always felt that if I try a little bit harder, if I do a little bit more, I'll be good enough. My story is that I come from Arizona. I grew up in a very, very small town. I am half Native American, half Mexican American, 
and I grew up in a traditional Catholic environment. I attended Catholic schools and catechism until I graduated from high school. The people in my family graduated from high school, got married, had children, and worked the land like my aunts and uncles and everyone else in my family had. The women didn't drink. They certainly didn't go to college or have any aspiration to, and I did both. I um, had my first drink at the age of 19, and I remember it vividly. It was in the restroom of Professor Pudgy's in Tempe, Arizona. And my friend Carolyn Lane pulled me into the bathroom with her and offered me a half pint of tequila. And I just remember going to that place of being on a cloud. And it was wonderful. I loved it. I also discovered marijuana in college. And I went to um, college as a National Merit Scholar. And I tell you that only because after my first semester when I realized that they didn't care who I was and what my grades were. If I didn't show up and take a test, I wasn't going to get a grade. And I got called into the dean's office being told I was on academic probation and had a semester to get it together or lose my scholarship. And I knew that I came from a family that didn't have a financial resource to put me through school. So marijuana went on the back burner. And sure, I continued to dabble in the things along the way. I had the pleasure also, summers lifeguarding at a military base. And boy, those young enlisted men have a whole lot of money and don't know what to do with it. So they would provide me with occasional drinks and, you know, I did the, the routine of trying acid one time. I did those things once for my academic experience to say I've done them, I know what it's like and I choose not to do it anymore. And I didn't. Um, I was one of those people, as I said, alluded to earlier, I was goal driven. And I look back on it when I did my fourth step and my father left when I was a child. And I got a card from him when I graduated from eighth grade because I was my class valedictorian. I got a card from him when I graduated from high school. I was my class valedictorian. And I got a letter from him when I graduated from college. And that was the only contact that I ever had with him. So I got given the message that if you do well enough, Daddy will pay attention to you. So I just knew that there were things that I wanted to do in my life, and I worked toward those goals. So drinking was just really not an issue for me. It was there. I had fun doing it, but I could have taken it or leave it, and I usually left it because I was on a mission. I likened a drink to I was someone who felt that I was standing in the curb or on, in the, within the curb, kind of at the gutter level, and that when I had a drink in me, I was standing up on the sidewalk with the rest of you. I was finally even with you. I remember when I got my job here on faculty, my heart was pounding at the first social gathering we had. First thing I did was went and drank, and I thought, shit, when they find out who I am, they're going to throw me out. Because I knew I was an imposter. I didn't belong here. And even though I had done the footwork to get here, there's still something lacking in me. I, um, as I said, I went to Catholic school and the catechism and all that other good stuff for the 12 years of my life. But it wasn't until I was like 22, I was in graduate school at Arizona State, and I went to the Newman Center, and it occurred to me for the first time that when they do the Mass, they're actually reading from the Bible. I didn't know that. And and I thought, well, okay, that's true. I guess God is within the Catholic Church. And then I remember what my grandfather had said to me, Nihita, if you ever meet anyone that doesn't like a Catholic, tell them to go to hell, because they won't find us there. <laughs> but it never occurred to me that God was a part of church. It just didn't, so... My image of God in my life was a big foot, and I was a little ant, and at any move, any moment with the wrong move, he was down on me. And so I had to make sure that I didn't do anything to incur his wrath or his anger. 
I walked with an unhealthy fear of God as opposed to a healthy fear out of respect and desire for him in my life. Um, <clears throat> my drinking, actually, I'm one of those people, and I hear, you know, I heard it in treatment that for women, the process happens much quicker for some women than for men. My drinking really started at the age of 37, and I got sober at 42, and I've been sober for three years. I'm 45. I don't have a problem admitting that. Somebody said, how bold that you'll tell people how old you are, and I think, thank God I can say that I'm 45, because given my own uh, behavior, the option was not to have made it to 45. I um, drank, and I mentioned this at a women's meeting the other night. I had to think about it. It's like, when did my drinking really start as a significant part of my life? And it was when all the dust settled. It was when I had achieved my goals. I had arrived where I thought I wanted to arrive, and I didn't know what to do with myself. There just seemed to be something else necessary. And so I used alcohol to kind of fill that blank time to take away the boredom. You know, weekends when you're by yourself can be very boring, but if you drink early on a Saturday morning and pass out the rest of the day, the weekends get kind of cut in half, and Monday rolls around a lot quicker than I thought it would. And that's what I used to do. Um, along my journey, it's not coincidental, I married a man who drank heavier than I did because I still look like a lady in comparison to him. And you take a physician and an Irish trial defense lawyer and you give him enough alcohol and, oh, my God, you don't want to get too close. We just had great arguments in our drinking. And that's when I started to recognize that perhaps there was something about me that it wasn't until my husband found an empty fifth of Jameson in my underwear drawer that he said, maybe we have a problem here. And all I could think was, shit, I forgot to throw that away. And I had every intention of throwing that bottle away. It didn't occur to me that, you know, I was doing what I was doing. I used to hide my bottles when I was by myself. I don't know what I thought I was doing. And I was one of those people that never let you see me drink. I made sure I did it before I got there. And just to uh, keep my comfort level... I would always, and I have the purse with me, I was just thinking that as I was sitting there, the coach bucket bags are really wonderful bags because they're big enough that you can take your fifth of vodka, put it flat at the bottom, and put stuff on top of it, and no one will ever know you're carrying a bottle, and they certainly won't see it. And that's what I did when I went out. But that began the very hesitant and very reluctant recognition that there was something going on with me that I no longer had control over. And I had the deepest desire, and I was sincere about my desire to not be doing what I was doing. I had those three or four o'clock in the morning wake-ups where I would just lay there, and I would try to bury my head in the pillow, and I would just say, God, this has got to stop. But I was never going to acknowledge that I had a drinking problem. I was never going to say the word alcoholic. It just wasn't something I could do. I remember um, in May of 1998, about a month so or so then before I got sober, I was in my upstairs bedroom, and I turned to walk downstairs, and I caught my face in the mirror, and I think that you had alluded to it about seeing your face and going, who is that? I looked in the mirror, and it was the first time, and it was, I mean, it was painful. I just looked at myself and said, that's the face of a woman who drinks too much. And I stood there, and all I could do in my mind was say, ALC, ALC. I could not finish the word alcoholic. Because it was just, it was a moral and a spiritual weakness and a sin, so I could not be there. 
I um I had my last drunk on a Tuesday night, and I can't tell you there was any reason except that I am an alcoholic. I had just had four days with my sister and her children visiting me that were wonderful. We had a great time, and I had been sober during that time. I used to go through the routine of only drinking about three nights a week, usually because the other two I was so damn hungover I couldn't walk straight, and I needed a day of recovery so that I could pick it up again the next day. But it was also my measure of saying, see, there is not a problem. In fact, I felt right at the very end, I felt so bad that I went and I had one of the nurses draw my TSH because I swore I was hypothyroid. That was the only reason I felt as miserable physically as I felt because there was something wrong functionally. Well, they also snuck in a cholesterol in a fasting state, and I was just so proud that my HDL was 112. <laughs> well, that changed after I got sober, but in any event. Um, I had these my niece and nephew in my care while my sister was out shopping, and for whatever reason, I just decided I was going to sneak a drink, and it was going to be a quick one. The only thing left in the house was a fifth of Lagavulin single malt scotch that my husband had been given as a gift, and it was unopened. Well, I opened it and had a quick drink, thinking she'll never know. That quick drink turned into a few more drinks, and within about a two-hour period, I had managed to put away a little over a half of that fifth. And these two children who mean the world to me, their aunt, passed out on them. And I need to remember that. Because when I forget it, that's when I'm close to saying, it's okay, I've had enough time between me and my last drink that maybe a little bit won't hurt. And I recently had the experience, and actually last week, I was in New York for a week with my sister and her husband and these two same children. They were on a business trip, and I joined them. And I had the privilege of being a sober aunt and sister and sister-in-law and being trusted with these two children in a hotel room, being trusted with them out on the town by myself one evening. So my sister knew that I would be fully cognizant of what I was doing and I would do nothing to endanger them because I'm sober today and my judgment isn't clouded. I um, had my last drunk that night and the next morning I got up and I went to work thinking, I've got to get out of here before she gets up. Well, as quiet as I was, she was waiting for me at the bottom of the stairwell with her hands across the banisters, <laughs> blocking my leaving. And I just looked at her and said, Mary Alf, I'm in a hurry. I've got to go. And she just quietly looked at me with that peace in her face and said, there will never be a good time to talk about this, will there? And I remember getting in my car and just crying. And I knew then the gig was up that I'd had my last drunk. By the grace of God, I pray that will remain my last drunk. I uh, I went to work, and I am very, very blessed and fortunate to work in a facility where, though there are some people who don't understand recovery, and I've heard the comments, you know, when I went away to treatment, my disappearance for four months wasn't a, oh, she's on vacation. People had an understanding there was something a little more going on, and that's okay. But the person that I told that I drank too much for the first time was the dean of the medical school, who's one of my practice partners. And from that saying, I drink too much, to being taken to his home and him saying, I don't know what to do for you, but I've got someone that I can call. And I just remember thinking, God, please don't let it be anyone I know. No one, certainly, from the hospital. And as the doorbell rang and I turned and I looked, all I thought was, oh, shit. It was the chairman of a department who I'd been at a committee meeting with the morning before who is in this program. <laughs> he took me to my first meeting that day. I remember, though, when he walked in 
and and it was something that I felt so disconnected and I felt so isolated that he put his arms around me when he got there and he said, you're not alone. And I've heard this before uh, this week, but I, I have to say it because it is true for me. It never occurred to me that there was another doctor with a drinking problem. It just didn't. I felt so ashamed. And I knew that if you knew, you'd throw me out of my profession. And at that point, my profession was the only thing that I had, apart from my getting drunk, that made me feel good about who I am. So I went to my first meeting, and I remember we walked in. It was a 5.30 in the afternoon, and there are all these people greeting each other. They're all laughing and smiling, and they're happy to see each other. And I remember sitting there just totally pissed off, thinking there is not a damn thing funny going on here. And then they came around to me to introduce myself, and I said, My name is Linda, and I'm a visitor. And that, you know, I just felt like these people don't get it. <laughs> they don't get this isn't funny, and it's certainly not funny for me. Well, I then um, <clears throat> proceeded to take time off with encouragement from the chairman of my department, and I spent my first two months of being sober in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where we have a home. And I just remember being numb each day. When they would go around the room and ask for people with less than 30 days of sobriety to introduce themselves, I wouldn't because I wanted to have at least 30 days because I felt like I had to at least accomplish that. I remember a guy stood up with 90 days, and I thought, now, if you get to 90 days, that's good. But um, I made the decision to go to treatment after being sober for two months because I realized I'm not drinking, but now what? Now what do I do? And I recognized that for so long, my life had been put on hold. My personal growth, my spiritual development had been put on hold in search of something else. And just just to share the irony, I have a master's in clinical psychology. Before I went to medical school, I was a family therapist in an inpatient setting for chemically dependent adolescents. And I used to counsel them on the 12 steps. <laughs> Never occurred to me I'd be participating in the practice of them. But I recognize that no matter what you know intellectually, that until it happens to you, there is no figuring it out before. And I went to treatment, and I remember sitting and reading on the daily meditation book that somebody had on their table that abstinence is not enough for us, that until I am able to accomplish spiritual growth and development, until I come to a recognition that my higher power is alive and well with me, I will never experience the serenity that I so desire. And I'll never forget that because that was, that's why I'm here in treatment, because I, I want serenity. I don't just want to not have to pick up a drink. I want peace in my life. And as I've come through this journey, it's interesting that I've returned somewhat to the God that I was raised with as a child. I choose today to call my higher power the scriptural God of the Bible. I am not a practicing Catholic anymore. I go to a non-denominational church. But God has become someone not in a book, not in a building. He's become someone that I can talk to in my car. He's become someone that I have conversations with at home and that I entrust with decision-making for me. There are some personal things that I've experienced recently, and one of them is that I um, I recognize that, you know, you, we hear that person, places, or things we have no control over. Well, persons, places, or things also don't fill up that void. I tried to fill it up with alcohol, and that didn't work. And, you know, I got caught off guard recently where I had taken a person and made them my higher power. But I can go through these personal struggles because I have this person over here in the background, and they are the thing that makes me feel good. 
and I can feel real close to God as long as I'm getting what I want. And I can be real happy about what I've been given in recovery when things are going Linda's way. Well, God removed that person from my life, and it was horrible. I just felt more pain than I have felt in a long time, and just an emptiness and an aloneness. This was about six weeks ago, and I have not told anyone this except my sponsor and someone else in the program who, I've never talked about it aloud, but about less than six weeks ago, for the first time in my sobriety, I pulled into the parking lot of a liquor store and I sat there, and I thought, fuck it, I don't care anymore. If this is what being sober feels like, if doing the right thing brings me this, then what I had before isn't all that bad. And I sat there for 15 minutes and I started crying and I started praying and I didn't know what to do. I wasn't going to call my sponsor because I was too ashamed to be in that parking lot and tell her. But I wanted relief. I wanted comfort. I wanted out. And I ended up managing to pull out and go home. The next morning I was at work and the nurse came and tapped on the door and said, Dr. Lucio, a gentleman, a Dr. Vorce, wants to talk to you. And immediately, my body flooded with that guilt and shame that it used to when I was drinking. And somebody said, can I talk to you? That oh, my God, <laughs> no. And and I, I quickly thought, someone saw me sitting in the parking lot. And I thought, wait a minute, I haven't done anything wrong. No, no. And I got that phone call less than 12 hours after I sat in that parking lot of the liquor store. And Hal said, Linda, he said, I'd like you to share with us at the IDAA meeting of the role of your spirituality and your recovery. And I just, I mean, my spine went weak, and the first thing that went through my mind was no way. But that is evidence to me of how real God is in my life, that he knew where I was at, he knew what I would be going through in the following weeks, and he was just giving me a very tangible reminder of his presence in my life, saying, I'm going to give you something that calls you to accountability. And I knew that my coming up here and speaking today, despite my not wanting to, is because God was reminding me, you're going to share where I brought you from and who I am today. But more importantly, not the sharing is you're remembering that when you were alone at 4 o'clock in the morning and saying, God, help me, this has got to stop, I answered that. That when you asked for someone to show you how to be a sober woman, I brought a woman sponsor into your life who's showing you how to do that. And that when you think you're alone, I'm sitting right next to you. And you know, when you're not living right, that's not a very good thought because um, I actually, before I got sober, the last year of my drinking, I was a nursery director in the church that I still go to now. And I was a nursery director for two and a half years and I would show up there on Sunday morning so hungover and trusted with the care of these children, with these people who are all clear-eyed and pleasant. And I would just feel this enormous guilt knowing my little secret and what I had done before and knowing that they were looking at me like I was all right and knowing that I was anything but all right. And so I resigned that nursery directorship thinking that's just too much stress with my medical practice, so I'll just come to church instead and get reconnected to God. It got to the point where I just really felt so disconnected from everything that when I went to church, I felt like there was nothing. There was a void. I couldn't pray. So what I would do is have some vodka in the morning before I'd go to church, and it loosened the prayer up in me. With enough vodka in me, I could even raise my hands and say, Hallelujah, and thank you, Father. 
and I felt that. I meant it sincerely, but I was so void that it took alcohol to stir something up. And then people would look at me, and I felt so convicted. No one said anything. No one treated me any differently. But I felt so, again, ashamed of going to church, having to rank before I went there, that instead of quitting drinking before I went there, I just quit going to church. And that was, I thank God, just saying, your downward spiral is now beginning. And it went quickly. Someone said to me, well, do you think that really with only five serious years of drinking, you can say you're an alcoholic? Well, <laughs> I don't know that there's duration or quantity, but for this girl, coming down the stairs and seeing my address book open by the phone and going, oh, my God, who did I call? That's enough to make me say, maybe there is something going on here. When I have to look at the bottle to see how much I drank and recognize the bottle in the cupboard is different than the one I started with, and that somewhere in the interim I went out and got another one because I finished the other one off, and maybe there is a problem. I remember when I went to treatment, some guy asked me, he said, well, what do you do? And I said, as far as my drug of the choice, I said, just good old vodka. And he said, what do you like? He said, do you like it with soda? Do you like it in a martini? How do you like it? And I said, straight out of the bottle. But I always made sure that I wiped my lipstick off the rim. <clears throat> I was also, that was my part of water conservation. Why dirty a bunch of glasses when the goal is just to get it in you? And I never wasted time. And somebody said, didn't you drink beer or wine? I'm like, hell, that's not enough bang for my buck. The volume is more than I want, but you just give me the concentration. Because the goal was not to drink for me, as I know it wasn't for many of us. The goal was to get to another place to be somewhere beside being Linda. And it worked for a while in my drinking. Um, after my first AA meeting, I got up the next morning. Well, I actually didn't sleep the whole night tossing and turning and going. Just that grim reality, you know, when you recognize and you are able to say alcoholic and go, oh, shit, now what have I done? I um, called my mother in the morning. She lives in Nevada, and it was 6.30 her time. And I said, Mother, I've got to tell you something. I said, I have a problem. And I said, and last night I went to my first AA meeting, and I thought she was going to be stunned. Her oldest daughter, her pride and joy being the doctor in the family, her response was, hallelujah. She said, I knew that God would honor my prayers. I just didn't know when. And my sister, who was able to look at me with clarity and say, there will never be a good time to talk about this, called me the night that I was packing to go to treatment the next morning. And I said to her, I don't want to talk. I'm busy. And I hung up the phone, and I recognized that's my alcoholic behavior. When I'm in pain, I want to avoid it. So I picked up the phone, and I started crying. And I told her I was so ashamed. And she said, I can understand that. And she said, and I could see if you let your mind take you there that this will be just something that is a mind blower. She said, but, you know, I look at it that the shame would have been to try to live another 42 years without looking at this. And she said, I just look at it as so wonderful that the Holy Spirit has brought you to a place where God can shine light in all the dark areas of your life. And that's what sobriety has given me. It's been a flashlight so that now in recovery, God can shine light in all the dark areas of my life. And I'm an infant in this program. And I've experienced some things in sobriety and in recovery that I remember hearing you guys talk about when I first came here that would happen. And some of them good and some of them not so good. But I haven't had to drink over the bad stuff. And I know I don't deserve the credit for the good stuff. 
because you've been my teachers and God has been patient with me. I had a, I had just, I had an experience Monday night. I was leaving my caduceus meeting and I had a flat tire. So it took two surgeons and an internist to change that flat, by the way. Um, <laughs> with one of them commenting, aren't we a pathetic group? <laughs> but they put the spare on my tire. And he said, you know, that spare is worn down. You you need to get that fixed as soon as possible. So within a mile and a half from home, that spare went flat. And I managed to pull into this poorly lit little convenience store, not a real good area. And I called a friend of mine who um, is not in the program. And he came and he rescued me. And I said, Mark, I said, I'm doing the right thing. I said, I can't believe this happened to me and blah, blah, blah. And while I said he's not in the program, he has exposure to it through an uncle he's very close to. He's been sober for over 25 years. And Mark looked at me and he said, you know, he goes, what is it about you people? He said, you quit drinking and you think life is just going to stop happening. You know, <laughs> And I guess that is it. And I, I told my sponsor at three years that I sometimes felt worse than I did at six months. And she said, because you're awake. She said, you're getting to feel your life. It's not happening to you. And one of the best gifts that I've been given recently that I've recognized is that I'm not just a human doing anymore. I'm learning slowly to become a human being. And God has put people in my life that are showing me how to do that. And I am just, I have glimmers of peace this, these days that I can be in my own company and I feel at peace. I'm not trying to find something else to take up the space or the time. And I have learned to not be afraid to call you when I am in a hard place. It has been such a gift for me being a part of this meeting and to meet the women here in recovery. There's some that I have just felt an instant connection with. And I was telling someone that I have a community of women in recovery who are not in the medical profession, and they're great. But there is just certain, I don't know, there is just something for me that has been different about meeting women who are in the medical profession, who are also in recovery. We understand each other at an unspoken level. And that has really just been a blessing to me. So I am um, just grateful to be here. I'm grateful that I got asked to talk. And I had prayed that God would not let me cry while I'm up here. I did come prepared in the event, though. Usually when I talk about my spirituality, it is very, very touching to me. Um, because I know that it is grace that has allowed me the gift of recovery, and it was mercy that covered me until I was willing to make that decision. So I'm grateful to be here, and thank you very much. Thank you.